Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 120 being recorded on Monday, March 12th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. This is continues our segments here live from the Path to Purchase Summit, uh, where we have some beautiful background music from Group Love, one of my favorite bands. Uh, and Great, now I'm going to have to pay a royalty. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a band that sounds like Group Love. Okay. okay. Uh, and uh, anyway, so we are really excited to have back on the show one of our most popular guests, Andrea Lay. Well, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. And as a quick reminder to folks, you're ex-Amazonian and uh, you are an expert on negotiating with Amazon because you were on the other side of the table. So this is why it's always such a hot topic. You know what all the, the secrets car- cards are that Amazon has. Exactly. Or at least some of them. <laughs> Does that mean they don't like you? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I like to think that we help clients find win-wins. I mean, that's the goal, right? It's to find areas where the brands can excel and Amazon can continue growing the business. Cool. Well, give us a little, it's been about a year since you were on the show. So give us an update on what's new with you career-wise. Wow. It was that long ago. It was. Um, it feels like it was yesterday. Well, yeah, so. This podcast, uh, yeah, it's like dog years. Trust me. <laughs> so I, w- well, I, w- I think when we last met, I was working with Melissa, um, Lay and Burdick and Andrea K. Lay Consulting, working with brands um, on their Amazon strategy. In September, I actually joined up with my husband at IdeoClick and I'm the vice president of client services there. And IdeoClick is a managed services provider, so we offer software, data analytics reporting, um, consulting and advisory services, item data management, marketing, AMS management, et cetera, um, and uh, have been there for about six months now. And um, we work with clients across all categories, but tend to be a little more focused in the CPG space, so grocery and health and personal care. How's it working with your husband? It's so much fun. We went to grad school together and have sort of had been in the same space for a long time. So it's actually like one of the best things about the Does job. he ever do that joke where he's like talking about sleeping with his coworker? <laughs> it's a classic one. In today's you know, world, it's great. He does. He really <laughs> enjoys finding inappropriate jokes and he hasn't thought about oh, them. So I'll to, make sure to mention like, it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I presume he's a regular listener. So now he has it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there you go. And just uh, one of our interns just ran up uh, and told me that you were last on the show May 11th last year. So it has been about a year. Yes, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for having me back. Sure. Thanks for being here. Um, you mentioned CPG and grocery, and it feels like grocery is one of those areas where uh, there's been a lot of progress in the last year, and grocers are thinking a lot more digitally. Um, like, obviously, the, the Whole Foods announcement, amongst others. Um, how, how are you seeing the grocery space? What's going on in grocery? I think the biggest thing we're seeing is that, um, you know, where a few years ago, Amazon in particular and a lot of e-commerce players were really just trying to grab customers and growth and sell a lot of grocery products, the focus has really shifted to more about being profitable, profitable and sustainable growth, which means that for a lot of our clients um, and a lot of brands out there, 
selling on Amazon has become really difficult um, because there are a lot of product categories that just aren't um, super sustainable online, you know, given delivery economics. So we're starting to see a lot of clients and and I'm seeing folks in the space really start to invest in capabilities, direct ship to consumer on their own, using 3PLs, focusing on click and collect with other grocers. Um, and so, I mean, I've just seen kind of the most, I think the pace of innovation is really sped up the last couple of years as Amazon and other e-commerce players um, start to push some of those profit concerns back on the brands. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I've certainly seen all that as well. And I keep beating this drum that uh, everyone seems to think I'm wrong on. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm trying try, to find. Try me out. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, so not saying Amazon can't be hugely successful in grocery, but because of those delivery economics, I actually think that the dominant model for digital grocery is actually grocery pickup. Totally, totally agree with you. Um, you know, I think, well, I think grocery pickup is going to be, is huge. And and for a lot of these brands that I think got on the Amazon bandwagon early, um, you know, I hope they haven't abandoned some of their, well, I don't mean I know they haven't abandoned, but I hope they haven't deprioritized some of their initiatives with brick and mortar um, because the brick and mortar space is heating up around click and collect and grocery pickup. Um, and so, you know, I think that, I, I, I totally agree with you. I do think the sustainable model for e-commerce is something that looks more like Amazon's pantry model, um, where you try to get the average ring up and you're able to spread those delivery and shipping economics across a larger number of items um, and send it kind of the slowest ship method. Um, not only does it help with the delivery economics, but it helps with forecasting when you have more time to um, be sort of more of a just-in-time uh, inventory model. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of pantry, did you see the news that they've... Um they slightly changed that model this month. Oh, um, so pantry used to be a, a pay per drink thing. So uh, five ninety nine yep. per box, yep. and then you you put as much stuff as you can in the box. Um, so they're doing away with the five ninety nine fee, and it's now a new service you have to subscribe to for five bucks a month, and then you can use pantry as much as that you, makes sense. You yeah, want. yeah. And so the theory is, as as opposed to having that big friction of taking six dollars out of your wallet every right. time you want to use it, that it just gets tacked on to your your prime membership and uh and you you stop thinking about that cost per drink and you're more likely to use it more often. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. Amazon has had like wild success with all of the subscription models, um, you know, for fresh and for um obviously prime and you know, they're they have all these prime add-ons now across their portfolio. So it does really increase the stickiness. I think we've all seen the metrics around prime and how much stickier those customers are. Um, but I think that's really interesting. And I do believe that in the next couple of years, we're going to see a really big shift at Amazon from, um, you know, the traditional Amazon.com grocery category over to pantry, more push to Whole Foods, more push to pick up um, to help really help the profitability. It's a sizable enough category at Amazon now that um, it's extraordinarily painful for them, um, you know, to be to be unprofitable on a lot of these items. Uh, one of the big uh, changes this month is they've they're they're now doing a bunch of pilot cities where they're delivering literally from the Whole Foods, mm-hmm. and so uh, there's even was a funny article about like the Instacart guys getting like moved out of their office into the hallway to make room for the Amazon employees <laughs> setting up setting up shop to do delivery. Um, they haven't announced this yet, but I think it's it's inevitable that that 
logistics infrastructure gets used for pickup as well, and that ultimately Absolutely. a bunch of Whole Foods end up being pickup depot or Amazon fresh pickup locations, if yeah. you will. I spent a number of years working in the grocery category at Amazon and also working on Amazon Fresh. And delivery economics for fresh food are really, really challenging. Um, you know, density is super critical. Um, you know, being able to hit multiple orders in an hour. Um, it, it's a really, it's an extraordinarily challenging business. And so I think, you know, it makes sense to focus on um, a limited sort of version of that. Uh, maybe there's an opportunity for Amazon to get scale. And then as they um, are able to grow that, they can kind of in- encourage customers to do more pickup. Were you surprised by the Whole Foods acquisition? I was, actually. Um, you know, a lot of people asked me about about it and if I'd heard any rumblings and no, like it was completely silent. Um, and, and I was really surprised, although it makes sense, right? I mean, that's, if you, in order to really be, I remember, um, Jeff or maybe it was, um, Jeff Bezos or maybe it was Jeff Wilkie saying something in the earlier days about if we really want to be like a true, um, you know, everything store, we absolutely have to have strong penetration in grocery and in fashion. Those were two categories. I mean, they're just enormous industries. Um, I think grocery is like the biggest industry. So they've really got to figure out how to get that right. And I think they were, I mean, frankly, based on sort of the the public sees like all of the projects that um, are launched and are successful and they scale, but there's so many pilots that happened in Seattle that weren't as interesting to everyone. Um, and if you look at all the fits and starts of this thing over the years, it doesn't surprise me that they went and purchased someone who was doing it really well. Got it. And then you think, um, so obviously they get the store footprint. One of the things I was surprised how quickly they worked on was getting the private label, the, what's it called, Whole 365, getting that into all the other platforms very quickly. That seemed like Absolutely. almost day one that that got, you know, I saw it in my prime now and it was featured. And then obviously they've done a lot in the stores with the lockers and selling Echoes and everything. I mean, I'm sure that was one of the, I think that was one of the probably, if you were to list out like five or 10 main reasons Amazon bought them, access to their private label was a huge one. Um, you know, they really dislike private label. It's assortment they can't usually have on their site. They can use, sometimes get it through resellers. Um, you know, we were able to get some of the Costco stuff through resellers on the third-party platform. But Amazon's um, the largest seller of Kirkland yeah, online. There you go. Now they are. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It helps that, that Costco, Costco doesn't really sell it. selling. <laughs> yeah. It's a low bar, but they, they jump over. Totally. <laughs> Do you, so it seems like, um, you know, as they integrate Whole Foods, they'll be – you know, it seems Amazon's very efficient. They're, right now, there's probably all these different buyers and things. Do you think they'll consolidate that? What are you hearing anything about that? You know, <clears throat> I think it'll be interesting to see what they do with the when looking back at some prior acquisitions like um, Diapers and Zappos. They were really slow to integrate some of those teams. Um, you know, and I think I think there are probably a lot of reasons for that. I expect this one will happen quicker, mainly because it's a category they have got to get. You know, they've got to get uh, more profitable on. <clears throat> so focusing on those costs and getting transparency there quickly is going to be important. And I just read something this morning about how they've reached out to some brands and have invited them to some kind of like summit or meeting next week. Um, Whole Foods has to talk about, um, I think it was to address some of the concerns that have been popping up in the vendor community, probably specifically around costs. Um, but the article was also speculating that um, Amazon was going to try to do away with traditional grocery brokers, which I think is a really, that's really interesting and potentially like try to um, recoup some of those, that funding for themselves. 
Um, so sort of cutting out the middle intermediary. Um, Give me the, I'm a, not a grocery guru. What's oh, the for so, dummies on grocery brokers? So t- um, a lot of brands work with traditional brick and mortar through what are called brokers. Um, so third parties that broker the deal and do the negotiating and um, negotiate for shelf space. The brands are um, often like really involved in that process, but the broker actually um, manages that relationship. And for Amazon, um, they work with an, or we, you know, worked with more grocers in the early or more brokers in the earlier days, but it had really tried to kind of do away with a lot of that. Um, I mean, in some ways you could look at it as an a pretty antiquated model. Like brands are pretty sufficient or self-sufficient in their ability to negotiate now and, um, and, you know, and negotiate for a shelf space and figure out how to navigate a brick and mortar store. It's not like a novelty anymore. Um, they know how to get into Costco. So, so um, do, I think that's a model that's kind of ripe for disruption anyway. Um, it'll be interesting to see if this encourages it um, more quickly across other brick-and-mortar channels. One, one uh, I, I've been trying to figure out how this overlaps, but like, so if you're craft, you know how to sell to grocery stores and you have all those infrastructures and you, you probably aren't, already aren't using a broker or you're not getting a lot of value from the broker. Historically, Whole Foods has carried a lot of much smaller, nascent brands, often at the local level, right? right? And so you can imagine you're Amy's Bakery, um, and you make baked goods in your kitchen, and you're selling right. them through just the Austin Whole Foods. A broker could be helpful yeah. um, in in opening that relationship because you don't know the kind of terms you should be right. doing all those sorts of things. <clears throat> so part of me goes, oh, that's where they're taking the broker out. But I actually think Amazon has already taken a lot of that local buying authority away from the whole food stores. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a model that was sort of deteriorating anyway. And then, I mean, there's, you could all, so there's brokers, which sort of like manage the deal, but then there's also distributors, which actually procure the product and then resell it. Um, and that's another avenue that a lot of those smaller brands use to kind of get into some of the channels where they couldn't, well, it didn't make sense for them to have sales teams set up for all of those different um, channels. And so working through like a distributor or a broker. Um, but you know, it's more cost that, and it's more profit that can be had by Amazon. So I can see why they would want to, um, sort of get rid of that third party. For sure. Cool. So this is, um, switching gears out of grocery. Uh, this is the time of year when vendors get their, their kind of notice from Amazon that it's time to negotiate. Um, which seems like it's probably a, a not exciting notice to get. <laughs> um, so I imagine you get you get a lot of calls on this kind of time, and, and you're giving a talk here today on this. And you talked a little bit about it on the last show. What What's new in, in the world of negotiating with Amazon? Yeah. I don't know if it's really new, but growing is the concept. Well, obviously, always more automation. Every year there's more automation. Um, more and more um, of our clients, even some of the larger ones now, are getting um, sort of these automated email asks. So more push towards automation. And then the other more recent development is Amazon's always had for some categories sort of professional negotiating teams and that's um, that arm of Amazon is growing so we have more and more clients who are being asked to negotiate um, with like essentially it's a third party within Amazon so not the retail buyer that they've traditionally worked with, but instead like a professional negotiator, um, which I think is interesting for brands. In some ways, they lose... Is it, is it William Shatner, by chance? No? Leather negotiator? Sorry. I think, um, <laughs> I think it's really interesting for brands because in some ways, it's a complete disadvantage for them because they're dealing with someone who like is highly skilled, a highly skilled negotiator. Um, but in other ways, it's to their advantage because they possess a lot more category knowledge than the negotiator does. Um, and so... 
think figuring out how to work with that team as that team um, grows and starts uh, interacting with more brands is going to be critical. It's, I don't know if this is a fair model or not, but I, in my mind, I imagine it's a little like the, the car dealership model where essentially the, they, they make you negotiate with the individual salesperson who very intentionally <laughs> doesn't have any authority or autonomy. And so they're intentionally uh, uh, aggregating you or disintermediating you from the decision maker who's the, yes. the, the dealership manager. And in the same way, these professional negotiators are disintermediating the brand yes. from the, the merchant. I would imagine that the professional negotiators, at least what I know of them <clears throat> from our clients, have a very, very narrow window of what they can actually approve and, you know, agree to. And then everything after that um, has to go is probably escalated. Like, as far as we know, the category leader is still the ultimate decision maker. So it's important to make sure like you're, especially if you're a large brand, you've got access to that person. Um, but smaller brands, that we work with are typically doing 100% of the negotiation over email. Hmm. So, so how does this go? So uh, you're Brand X, I'm the negotiator. I start off and I say, Brand X, you've been a great partner with Amazon, so we love you. You're awesome. Uh, we need you to come down 20%. Is that yeah, like how it starts? Just yeah, like you'll they, get an algorithm. So the brands will get an algorithmically driven email that is looking at basically a data file and saying, in order for us to be profit positive on freight. For example, we need X percent in a freight allowance. And sometimes the figures that don't make sense. So our clients have gotten messages like asking for, you know, 15 and 20 percent freight allowances, which is not tenable, obviously. Um, so it's a it's an algorithmically driven email um, may look like it's coming from your buyer. It's probably not. Um, it's probably coming from a, a machine or a, um, and it's, and then there's some machine learning in it. So if you're, if you send back some responses, we've kind of had tested and learned on this with some of our clients, um, you know, some, some responses generate some responses back, um, and some responses get kicked out into an exception. And then typically at that point, especially if you're a small brand, you're kicked to an offshore team. That'll that'll conclude the negotiation. What's the best way to like mess with the AI? What if you're like, that's <laughs> well, too. We would like to offer a bigger discount, or can you just like start cussing at it? Or, like, what's, what? So we have found that for some of the critical negotiation components, like freight and marketing accruals, um, continuing to just say no over and over again may result in the brand Amazon not ordering from the brand anymore. So we've seen a couple instances of that happening where the brand took a pretty firm line and they were like no, and then the person wrote back. You know, it's the auto thing it's like that is not an acceptable like term for us and then no and then that is not an acceptable and then there was a threat and so read the emails carefully if there's a threat in there that amazon will stop ordering it's important to address the concern that, or address the ask you don't but you certainly don't have to give amazon everything they're asking for um you don't have to agree to like that exact term you can agree to something more than what you're doing um and typically make it through the process does it start like real macro like we want 12 percent, <clears throat> and then is it a good strategy to kind of start to try to get it to be more like at least category of skew or down to the skew level because it seems like on the other the, side, you'd have all these different costs. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about this today too. But I think the two things that I would really keep in mind when negotiating with Amazon are, first of all, focus on win-wins. So you want to if, if you have to give Amazon more money, you want to figure out how to do it in a way that grows the business. 
not in a way that just helps their bottom line. So an example of that might be, um, you know, coming forward with investment in a program. Like if Crosstalk is great for you because it saves you money shipping to fewer fulfillment centers, it might make sense to invest in that program with Amazon because it also helps their economics. So it's like a win-win. Or bringing forward um, a plan for an increase um, in marketing spending, specifically ROI-driven marketing like AMS or AAP, um, you know, helps you grow your business, also helps Amazon's bottom line. But giving more for things like marketing accruals or giving Amazon money for, um, you know, merchandising placements on the site that are sort of ambiguous um, isn't always necessarily a win-win. So making sure to choose those um, battles really carefully and choose those spots. And then I think the other thing I would keep in mind is... um, you know, you don't you don't have to give them everything that they're asking for. Um, and if they're asking for increases in terms like freight or damage allowances, ask for the supporting data that shows why those costs have gone up. Right. You might not get it, but at least it shows that you're um, you're auditing and you're um, and you and you may be able to drive a, a stalemate through that by saying, oh, you want an increase in the damage allowance. Tell me what about my product or what specific products are showing higher damage so I can actually go fix the problem instead of just giving you a higher um, accrual for that. Is this when Amazon will ask for um, different packaging or, you know, just like you know, frustration-free or, or, or like do a bundle of two or I, any This of that is something that is very frustrating to me. In earlier years, Amazon would certainly do that. And as a, when I started in 05 as a senior buyer, that was certainly a part of the annual negotiation. You would say, um, these items aren't profitable. Let's talk about how we can make them more profitable. Can we get this to a two-pack? Can you change the packet? I mean, we would it would be more of a, um, a coaching exercise. Um, but now it's just so much easier for Amazon to ask the brands for money. And especially when the negotiation is either automated or handled by a third party, there's no vested interest in, um, and no knowledge, really, like expertise to help a brand do that. Um, so we have more and more clients that we work with that we're doing that with, like playing that role that the buyer used to play um, in helping them figure some of that out. Doesn't Amazon use... Um so it used to be you'd have your warehouse pricing, and that was over here kind of separate. And then now I know this may not be part of the negotiation, but I know Amazon's now looking at that and kind of saying, well, you're selling it on, in Costco at you know the equivalent of this many dollars per ounce. Yeah. We want, you know, you can either bring that SKU over here right. <laughs> or the current SKU we have, we would like to see it at the same dollars per ounce. Is that, does that come up in these negotiations or that's more of just price parity? Yeah, stuff? I mean, if you're, that kind of comes up in like a crap situation or Amazon's term for can't realize any profit where they say, well, Walmart's selling it for this price. How are they, that look, that's below our cost. So how are they doing that? And I would advise brands, whatever you do, do not share your costs that you have with other retailers with Amazon. I mean, that's like a big uh, that's a big no-no um, because you can't ever roll that back, right? And now Amazon's aware of your cost structure to other brands. Um, it also makes it so that you can't sort of move the beans around when you need to. Um, it's just a level of transparency you don't ever want to give. I, and I think, I mean, uh, Scott might have been alluding to there's like a specific version of the dynamic pricing that brands are really afraid of. Yeah. You, you know, you sell a can of Campbell's soup on, on Amazon. It's a 12-ounce can, so the price per ounce is yes. whatever. Right. And so you sell a case Amazon, pack to Amazon, Costco. Amazon's getting so much smarter about that. I mean, it used to be – and we watched – I went through many re- evolutions of brands, de- de- like, spending a lot of R&D on designing different pack sizes. I think the K-Cup industry is a great example of this, where they, you know, sold a, this pack size to Costco and this pack size to Amazon and this one to Target. And they won't ever know that it's, like, all the wrong – same different prices. 
Um, they won't price match each other, but Amazon figured that out real quick and started matching per cup. And then they started matching per diaper, per wipe, um, per ounce. A lot of categories have the per something rolled out by now. And if they don't have it, you know, they will. Um, so trying to circumvent price matching through different pack sizes um, may buy you some time, um, but it, it isn't a long-term solution. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned a couple of terms um, when we were uh, just talking about uh, the sort of negotiating strategies, like freight allowance, for example. Uh, it feels like there's a whole different vernacular at Amazon. <clears throat> and I know they, they set these like uh, metrics and they really drive everything to those metrics. Um, can you kind of educate us? So, like, what are yeah. the high yeah, level yeah, metrics yeah. that, that, uh, brands need to learn about to work with Amazon? Well, I think it's kind of two questions. Like what are the terms you're going to negotiate about? And then what are the KPIs to manage your business? But the terms are, and I actually don't, I mean, I don't know if these are really different from other retailers. I don't have knowledge about, um, you know, about brick and mortar as much, but you know, they're typically looking at some kind of marketing at, Co-op is a high-level term that refers to any money you give Amazon. So off invoice, straight payments, accruals, whatever it is, is all co-op. Um, or at least that's how Amazon defines co-op. Um, it's typically a marketing accrual or some kind of base accrual or base allowance. Um, there's a damage allowance and a freight allowance if Amazon is paying the freight. Sometimes the client's or the vendors paying the freight. These are all expressed as some. So if I'm spending. Percentage of cost of goods. Yeah. They're all represented. So Amazon's buying a million. Yep. And I'm going to do co op dollars of 10%. It's going to be 100,000 in addition to that. Yep. And it's typically so these are all, taken that's off. That's kind of how they're all measured. Exactly. Okay. All percentage of cost of goods sold, all off invoice. Um, and then there are um, often a, like a subscribe and save allowance. Depending on the category you're in, there may be a mark, oops, a markdown allowance. Um, there could be like volume incentive rebates. Um, there might be like straight payments you've agreed to throughout the year. You might be paying for your talking about your SVS or your strategic vendor services <coughs> representative during this time of year. That's like a headcount you can buy at Amazon that just works on your brand. Um, so all of these things kind of come together to be the annual terms negotiations. And sometimes when the automated asks come out, they don't actually include everything that you're actually in doing with Amazon. So it's important to use a tracker, like build your own model um, so that you've got an all up view. You have a free one that I've heard you. I do. Yeah, um, it's on my website. Um, yeah, it's on my website, AndreaKayleyConsulting.com. We'll be adding it to the IdeoClick site soon too. Um, but it just allows you to sort of fill in um, your sales and the last year's terms, this year's terms, and then it um, auto calculates all the actual dollars spent. It's really important to look at the actual dollars. Um, it's one thing to know that you're giving Amazon a point more this year, and it's another thing to actually understand based on your growth rate how many more dollars you're actually giving Amazon anyway. <laughs> yeah. Because a lot of brands are growing really quickly on Amazon and they're doubling their spend with Amazon without actually even changing their co-op percentages. Um, and then you mentioned, so those are some of the terms. You mentioned like their specific KPI. Yeah, so some of the KPI, so it's important to speak Amazon when working with them and especially if you're sort of um, pushed to one of these automated channels. Side note, I was thinking the way to work around the AI, I haven't tried this myself, so you're on your own, but <laughs> is to only negotiate in a language that their natural language processor doesn't understand. <laughs> Klingon. So I'm thinking like Klingon or Sw uh, Jeff Bezos, it probably does understand. <laughs> oh, you're right, yeah. So it might be Swahili. That's maybe. hilarious. Yeah, I bet, you know, 
know, if I can get if I can get a willing client with a sense of humor, that might be something that might be something to try. Um, but there are a set of KPIs that are important for understanding and running your business on Amazon. If you can get a good command of them and understand them and have some benchmarking available to you, you can run a really successful business on Amazon without ever interacting with a human. But it's important to know the KPIs, um, sales, sales growth, obviously. But it's really important to look at a lot of clients we work with, even big ones, tend to look um, almost exclusively at orders Amazon places from the brand, you really need to be looking at point of sale data. That is the true indicator of demand. Um, that helps you understand how effective your marketing and promotional activities are. So that POS data is really critical. So shipped cogs, um, growth, growth in units, growth in, in revenue. Again, really surprised how a lot of clients will only look at revenue, which you lose a lot of the transactional nature of the metrics, understanding like how customers are transacting with your units, um, looking at the in-stock and inventory rates. Um, I think... Uh, Time and time again, we work with clients where they're like, why is my business not growing very fast at Amazon? And you look and the products are good and they're getting pretty good search ranking, but they're only, the brand is only filling like half of the purchase orders. Like they're not filling the demand. So you, you have to, you have to have product in order to sell it. So, um, keeping track of some of those metrics, getting your, a handle on your own metrics around those is important. Amazon reports on a metric in Vendor Central called Fast Track in Stock. It's sales weighted and glance product, uh, maybe getting too in the weeds here, but it's glance view weighted. You should just really know of all your items available, how many have inventory and how many don't. It's a much simpler metric. It gives you a much bigger picture and more complete picture. Of what's so the sales rate it is, it, it, um, <laughs> it does some indexing against higher sales rank items and how fast they're filled. You get a, a bigger good guy if you're in stock on a top seller yeah, okay. and you don't get a bad guy at all if you're out of stock on something that is like a really low seller. Yeah. When does, so when they come to channel advisor, brands are frustrated. Amazon's not buying; they're buying less and less of their assortment. When does that come up in this negotiation? Yeah, I mean, or it I mean, sounds like it really doesn't. It sounds like well, the buyer's going to buy what they're going to buy. And these are the terms. That if you're of, in a position where you're negotiating with a machine, you've got to find another way to sell those products on Amazon through third party. So, so it'll be really hard for you to get like the automated system or the team in India to like respond to a request like that. Um, but if you are in a position where you get a live person, um, you certainly should bring that into the negotiation. Like, why aren't you buying all my products? I'll give you this co-op if you commit to ordering my whole assortment. Um, and, you know, a lot of times you can talk to them about how that assortment might not be performing very well because it hasn't been in stock. It performs very well at other retailers. Like, giving all of that data and um, information can help Amazon make decisions. Got it. But not your cost data with other retailers. But not your cost data with yeah. other retailers. I think everyone <laughs> knows that, but I'm thought it was important to mention. I was surprised when I was a buyer how many brands would be transparent about that. I've never been a vendor, so I'm learning a ton. <laughs> you're, you're a lucky man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. Uh, last time you were on the show, we talked a little bit, and you alluded to it earlier. Uh, they have this uh, unhappy status, can't realize a profit. Yeah. Uh, A.K.A. crap. Yeah. Um, which, great great back backstory and all that about how that all came into uh uh, being Scott mentioned vendors that are frustrated that they won't carry the whole line. Um, my perception is almost always that at the beginning of the relationship, and tell me if I have this wrong, right? They actually do carry the whole line, yeah. And then products get crapped out, and they start cu uh, curating what they carry. Is is that largely true, or so if, or is it the case that they might only start so yeah, with a subset of products? Well, 
It, it depends. Um, generally speaking, Amazon will order things that customers look at. So if customers don't look at it, they probably won't order it. Um, but if you if you discover that your whole assortment isn't available on Amazon, there could be a myriad of reasons why that is. It could go back to like item setup issues. Maybe Amazon tried to order from you and you didn't fill it. Um, you know, maybe it's just not getting enough product glance views. Or maybe it's crap. And we've seen a lot of movement and interesting developments in Amazon's crap program over the last year. Um, the biggest one being that now they're starting to crap out products that are just low margin, not negative margin. Used to be zero was the floor. Um, now, if they're not hitting some margin, margin targets or requirements for the category, um, they're, they're essentially not ordering those products from the client or from the brands anymore or crapping the products out. Um, and I think that's a new development. Um, another new development is Amazon's kind of shifted the conversation from profitability to um, pure product margin or PPM. And I think the reason they're doing that is when they start crapping out products and communicating what products those are, it allows clients and brands and third parties to reconstruct Amazon's cost structure. And so focusing on pure product margin, which is just the diff or net pure product margin, which is the difference between the cost of the product less any marketing accruals or any co-op and the retail selling price really helps them focus on products where um, they're having to do a lot of price matching and where they want the brand to take some ownership over that issue, which might mean, you know, going to your other retail partners and saying, stop selling at these prices. I mean, that's what they want you to do, right? They want you to go back to Walmart and say, stop selling online at this price, um, which actually some of our clients have done and have had sort of mixed results with that, which has been interesting. Yeah. Meaning Walmart said no and then they're well, kind of stuck the between biggest, a rock and a hard place. The biggest thing we're noticing is that Walmart e-com and Walmart stores have different prices and it's lower online because they're trying to drive Amazon low and then get them to crap out the item. And now, yay, Walmart's the only one with the assortment online. Um, but Walmart e-com and brick and mortar, from what we've learned from our clients, are like completely separate entities. So if you go back to the e-com team and you say, and you're, and typically our clients are doing very little business on Am Walmart e-com. So we've had a few clients go back to Walmart and say, um, don't sell it at this price anymore or I will stop shipping it to you. And Walmart Ecom raises the price. So it actually has been effective for a few clients. It hasn't been effective for everyone. Um, but for a few of the players that we've worked with, they've had success with that tactic. I think they're trying to normalize that and have one buyer for both. But Right now there's still a gap. Yeah. Take advantage of it. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and I would imagine there's some flexibility about what you sell to them for online. Uh, if it, When it comes down to having to go to Walmart and raise the price in store, I suspect that's not going to go well. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I don't, I mean, clients wouldn't really, it wouldn't be in their best interest to do that. They're doing so much volume there. Um, but on e-com, it's a different story. We've also heard e-com, Walmart e-com will take whatever product they can get. Um, they're less selective about it. And so potentially, you know, suggesting different products versus what you're selling on Amazon might be a good strategy. Going back to that kind of picking the line that Amazon carries though, like the, I guess the model I have in my head is, say you're selling apparel, right? And you go call in Macy's and you bring a bunch of mannequins and you show them all the dresses. And some merchant at Macy's goes, that one's pretty, that one's pretty, I don't like that one, right? And it's right. their subjective expertise right. around the category. My, my sense is 
there's no merchant at Amazon that's going to subjectively try to pick winners and losers. I think there's some exceptions to that. The biggest ones being the pantry program where they are choosing products. Um, You can't just put anything in pantry. It goes through an approval process. Now, the people making those decisions might not know, might not be as educated as maybe like a a Walmart in-store brick-and-mortar buyer, but they are making assortment decisions. And so brands making some recommendations there can really help move that process along. The other space we're seeing that is in fashion. Um, I think Amazon started trying to carry all the assortment and quickly realized, I mean, first we have a couple of fashion clients that um, sell upward of 10,000 SKUs. I mean, you certainly can't carry all that assortment. You have to build so many fulfillment centers. So they did, they have um, invested internally in what they're calling more tastemakers um, to actually choose assortment and, um, and make those types of decisions. Uh, well, I know we're running up against lunch here, so why don't we go ahead and wrap so that you can have some lunch before you have to talk. Sounds great. Yeah, so uh, if people do have further questions, they're welcome to jump on our Facebook page, and we'll continue the conversation. Uh, if, you, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love to see you uh, jump on the iTunes and give us that five-star review. Uh, but thanks very much for making time for us and the listeners today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Andrea. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.